Okay, young people, I told you you had two nights to learn our proverb from last night. It was a little longer. But I just want to know, did someone learn it in one day? Nobody? Boy, you're smiling. Do you know it? Yeah, well, hop up and say it. All right, now I want you to remember that. Okay, the rest of you, we get one more night to learn that. We should be less afraid of failure than being good in things in life that don't really matter. So much of the things we do in light of eternity have no eternal consequence, yet they consume us. And we hardly have time for eternal things, it seems sometimes. And so I want to challenge us to be better at prioritizing what we spend our life's energy doing. Um, Again, I would like to speak to the young people tomorrow night, but the old people, uh, y'all come and help me. And... um, you can say amen if you want to, but anyway, what I want to share with you this evening is called the, the Cyanide Flats. Now you think, where is this guy going with this? Well, give me a little time and I'll explain. Grace, um, my wife, comes from Red Lake, Ontario. That's her home. And I lived in that area from 1977 to 1984, uh, there in points north. Red Lake, Ontario is a small town. It's much smaller than South Boston. I don't think that there's any name brand convenience stores or fast food places. No, I'm sorry. The last time I was there, there was a Tim Hortons, which is, you have to have a Tim Hortons to be Canadian, but anyway, they do have a Tim Hortons now, so they're really progressing. Small town. And it started about 1926. There's a vast area of land that lies between the fertile farmlands of South eastern Ontario, and the prairies that start in Manitoba and go all the way to the Canadian Rockies. And it's a land of rugged, rugged, rock-strewn landscape and a lot of water and lakes. It's called the Canadian Shield. But there are little spots along the way as you follow the road north out of the Kitchener-Waterloo area, and you get to a place called New Liskard, And, yeah, there's a lot of Mennonites there. And if you go on north, you can come to a place called Cochrane, Ontario, and there's Mennonites there. And it's rugged. There's a few cattle and a little bit of daring, but it's just so cold and so far north. And if you go on west of there to Dryden, Ontario, you'll see some dairies there that mostly the Swiss have immigrated and settled there, and of course they're used to cold, a harsh climate. Someone has said that 
um, Mennonites are always looking for good farmland. And I used to pick on my dad and Uncle Howard Brubaker that they couldn't accuse him of that when they moved to South Carolina. But uh, we have water, and so with sand and water, you can grow a lot of things. Compared to other regions where people have settled and where farming thrives in western Canada, Red Lake itself is not really that far north. It's about 300 miles north of International Falls, Minnesota, but there's a polar jet stream that comes down the Hudson Bay and dumps right on that place, and it's as cold as the blinks. And where Grace and I used to live, the lake was frozen up seven months of the year, and if you would dig a hole any time during the summer, if you dug deep enough, you'd hit frost. The place was cold. Until early 1920s, only native First Nations people lived there. In that area, it was a nomadic lot of hunters, trappers, fishermen, and they grew very little food. They lived off of the land and traded with white people, and particularly the Hudson Bay Company. And they worked with dog teams, and they traded furs for staples like flour and lard, sugar and tea. In 1925, prospectors pushed in from the south, from the Trans-Canadian Highway, and they were looking for gold. And they came by a dog team, an early open-air cockpit, little Boy Scout tent-looking airplanes, and they discovered gold there. And it was printed in the big newspapers of the cities, both in Canada and the United States, and in that first year, over 5,000 people swarmed into that rugged little place. And it's a desolate area. And they recorded 18,000 claims for the uh, mining office in Kenora, Ontario that first year. Now, unlike the gold of the Klondike or the California gold rush, Red Lake gold is known as load gold. It's not floating in streams in clear little balls it's melted through solid rock. And it's in the solid rock deposits. And so what the uh, these prospectors or geologists are looking for, they go around with this hammer with a sharp end on it, and they're chipping rocks and looking for veins of quartz that have yellow flecks in it. And then they'll do a core and send it to the lab, and they'll know if it's worth further... Uh, digging or mining. A lot of the gold in these gold rushes, people found it in streams and they would pan for it and then they would dig up the rocks of these streams and run water through it and find it that way. As is the case is almost all gold rushes, a few win big and the most of the would get quick people starve out. They go bust. There have been two significant gold rushes in the Red Lake area since the early 1920s. In 1944, a vein of gold was discovered that produced nine ounces of gold per ton of rock. Now, a ton of rock is not very big. If you filled your pickup truck with rock, it would be way more than a ton, and it would squash it to the ground. I don't care 
what kind of springs you had on it. And so nine ounces per ton of rock and gold is what, 300 and some dollars an ounce? And so three times nine, you know, we're talking thousands of dollars per ton of rock. That's what it's worth. Now, it wasn't worth that much down there. It's the purest ore in Canada and maybe in even all the world. That mine still exists today. In the late 1990s, another mine was developed, and as of July 2020, 30 million ounces, or 93,075 tons of high-quality gold have been mined in the Red Lake area. So you just start doing the math. 30, 9,300 tons times ounces times 300 and some dollars. The newest mine is owned by Gold Corp. And um, it was built mostly since Grace and I left the Red Lake area. It is 8,200 feet deep, a mile and a half deep. And they have to pump cool air down in the shaft to keep the miners comfortable because they're getting close enough to the center of the earth that it's hot down there. Now, I'm sorry I didn't bring anything for show and tell for two reasons. One, I couldn't carry that much rock. And the second thing, they wouldn't let me have one. But I did take a picture of it, and I wish you all could see it. If you find a rock that sparkles that much, you'd better hang on to it or get the gold out of it. Can you all see that? This is a rock out of a Red Lake mine. Sometimes they say the ore is so rich that it actually bends instead of shatters. You need to find some rocks like that. Well, in biblical time, we read in the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament, they talk about mining gold and refining gold, and how did they do it? They found these rocks, and they beat them to a pulp, and they hammered and hammered them until they was turned into dust, and then they put them in the fire and separated it that way. The gold would melt, the rock wouldn't. And then they had to cook it and cook it down and then skim it and skim it, and they had to dross, kind of like your butcher pots, you know. That was hard work, but it's so descriptive of the scriptures when he talks about refining gold and refining our lives, you know, and purifying that beating and crushing and then cooking to get all the impurities out. Well, in the 1800s, there was a Scotsman discovered that you could get the gold out of rock if you just crushed it in gravel side or, you know, a little finer than gravels, and you soak it in cyanide, it would extract all the gold out. And then you could run this cyanide solution into another vat and separate the gold from that. And so by the late 1890s, it became the gold standard for extraction of gold from ore in both the United States and Canada. Now cyanide has several formulations depending on the particular use of the end product. All are very poisonous and toxic, but there's no evidence that cyanide is a carcinogen. 
As you fly across the north, whether it's northwestern Ontario, northern Manitoba, or Alaska, you will see in the bush as you fly along dead spots where there's no vegetation, no trees, no, it's just brown dirt. And if you look closer, you can see some old buildings, maybe some mine shafts falling down, and you say, aha, there used to be a gold mine there, and they used cyanide to extract the gold from the ore, and those people didn't have the environmental protection and all those EPAs. They could have used some back then, but they didn't have them. And uh, that's why they bear down on us so hard now. But it was an environmentalist nightmare by today's standards. They just let this cyanide solution run out into the closest stream or lake, and it became sterile. Nothing would grow there. And 150 years later, it's sterile. These dead spots. Well, Red Lake is just a small town, but it's at the end of the road, a hundred miles north of the Trans Canada, a hundred and thirty miles north of Dryden. Some of you've been there or heard of it. And as you come, just as you're coming into town, you come by this nice, peaceful-looking little lake. It's not Red Lake, it's another lake, but it's just before you get to town. And it's land, it's got spruce trees and birch trees all around. Except for the one end, it looks like a nice sandy beach. Everything's there but the palm trees. And what tourists don't know is that that was the tailing pits for the early mines in Red Lake. Back in the 1930s and 40s. And so it's sterile, nothing grows there. Now, after a hundred years, almost a hundred years, there's late, um, trees growing around the edges on the faraway side. But from what they say, it's totally sterile. There's no moss there, there's no leeches, there's no minnows, there's no big fish, no tadpoles, no toads, no bullfrogs. Sterile. Well, I was there in the early, mid to early 70s, and so one evening, the other VS guys and myself decided, you know, they've told us this place is sterile for a long time, and we've got nothing else to do this evening, so we borrowed a boat. Steve Stolzfus, maybe you remember him from Kentucky, Dan Kurtz from Snow Hill, Maryland. Myron Mullet, or Abbeville Myron Mullet, and myself got a boat and a fishing rod, and we went way around the back of the lake and found a way to get in, and we started to troll, and I was riding the motor, and I think Steve Stolzfus had a rod with a big red and white spoon on it, and we were just cruising along, enjoying the evening talking, and finally Steve says, boy, I said, I, I got a snag, I think you're going to have to back up. And so I started to back up and turn the outboard in reverse. And, but then it moved just a little bit. And then we knew that he either had a giant snapping turtle or the Loch Ness Monster. I, I didn't know which, but he had something that moved and a snag don't move. Steve fought that thing for a long time. Finally, we got it to the surface. And if he didn't catch a big northern pike, big jackfish that was 
I think about 48 inches long. You see, I think that jackfish figured out that that place was supposed to be sterile. And there would be nobody over there to bother him, so he would come in out of Red Lake and cruise around there to his heart's content, go back and get lunch, and come back over there and be left alone. I don't know, but we got him. All I remember, he was a wall hanger if there ever was one. I don't know if he's hanging on a wall in Kentucky. I know we didn't need him because he had cyanide in him. But boy, was he pretty. I told you all that to tell you this. I just saw it, verse 3 of the first stanza. There's a rock that's cleft and no soul is left that may not its pure water share. I want to talk to you about springs of living water, clear water, no cyanide. 1 Timothy 1.3 is a warning against false teachers and false doctrine, and it goes like this. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now some have wandered away from these things and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then he finishes here with verse 11 that confirms to the glorious gospel of God which he entrusted to us. The glorious gospel of God. So how do you envision or would you describe the glorious gospel of God? Is it muddy? Is it full of gravel? Is it um, in an ore form? And we'll go through a lot of scriptures here that says that the springs of the living water are pure and undefiled. You know, it's, someone has said this, that no one gives advice with more authority than the uninformed. And I think that's right. And so we live in a time where people have access to all kinds of information, whether it's the media the internet or what have you, but they do not filter the information they get and they pass it on as truth. And I want to tell you to beware. It's been an age-old problem for self-enlightened and self-serving people to want to enlighten the faithful with some new way of teaching this and thus contaminating the purity of the gospel. I want to tell you there's no new wine. Now, back in the 1970s, there was a magazine came out by some charismatic group 
called the new wine. Does anybody know Does they still print it? I had a friend that was really into that thing. I said, Bo, this, there ain't no new wine. The revelation of the scriptures was over when they shut the lid on revelation. And I, I didn't like the name of that magazine. And he kind of went off on a, some strange ideas and he found his way back before he died. Thank God. But he was trying to find that new wine. There is no new wine. From the opening sentence of the phrase of a, of, that I just read, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Paul is reviewing with Timothy what the gospel really is. And here we have these verses, the smooth blending of doctrine and our behavior. And so it's very critical that we get it right because the way we believe, the doctrine that we adopt, affects what we believe and how we live. And uh, it always in both, involves both doctrine and practice. You can't separate the two. One of the things that Paul mentions in the scripture that the scriptures are profitable for is doctrine and teaching. I want to tell you, good doctrine is so important. It determines how we think and view the issues of life. And it is critical because if you do not think correctly, you will not live correctly. And what we believe will determine our conduct towards God and others. Uh, there's quite a few of you here who are older than I. And so, <clears throat> how many of y'all remember Jim Jones? All right. How many of you do not remember Jim Jones? How many of you want to find out about Jim Jones? All right. In the 19... 70s. I'm going to say it was the 1970s. There was a former Methodist minister named Jim Jones. He came out of Illinois. And he became disillusioned with his denominational practices. And he joined the mainline Pentecostal groups, um, a Pentecostal a group in the, the U.S. and moved to California and he developed a congregation there and it was big on faith healing and big on outward things and not big on a lot of structure and he also became an active member in the Communist Party and idolized Adolf Hitler. Now, the U.S. government became very suspicious of this man because Families would complain that their teenage children or even married children would go off with this guy and they'd never see him again. Or if they saw him again, they were so brainwashed that they wouldn't come home or they would try to proselyte their parents into this Jim Jones' cult. And so uh, the Fed started looking these guys over and seeing what was going on and to see if they were legit and Jim Jones got skittish, and so he took him and his followers, and they all moved to Guyana, which is where? You've been to school since I have. There's the school teacher. Where's Guyana? Uh, 
You used to live there. You should know. Where's Guyana? Well, I didn't know I'd have to come teach geography, too. <laughs> Maybe I'm thinking of Ghana. Yeah, Guyana, G-Y, G-U-Y-A-N-A. How many of you have heard of Venezuela? All right, it's just north of Venezuela on the north shore of South America, uh, kind of off to the east of where Panama and those come down. And so he moved his clan there, and he set up a commune there. A very controlling man and very demanding. And, and if you want to, he was a dictator and a very mean dictator. And he had those people under spiritual and physical bondage. One day, Senator Jim Ryan from California flew down there uh, to represent the people in his district and find out where these young people were and if they were okay and what was happening. And so he come down and went to visit the commune and asked how many people wanted to come back home. Well, there's a lot of them raised their hands. And so he was going to go back to the U.S. and see what he could do to airlift the ones that wanted to come home. And on his way, as he was climbing in his airplane, uh, the Jones people shot him and killed him and his entourage. Well, Jim Jones knew that he was in trouble with the Americans then, and so he had been training his people to practice to drink poison. And then he would, oh, well, it's just, it's not for real. But he would go through these drills. And so this time it wasn't, he wasn't just fooling around. They fed purple drink, and we call it Kool-Aid. You know, he drank the Kool-Aid that well, the Kool-Aid people don't like that because it wasn't really Kool-Aid. They don't like to be associated with that. But it was purple juice, and he loaded it with cyanide, and they fed it to all the children, and then the parents drank it. And then uh, Mr. Jones had his girlfriend shoot him, and then she shot herself. And when the feds came down from California and landed there, they found 918 souls dead on one day. 304 of them were little children. That's what happens when you drink from the fountain that is not pure. <coughs> Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened. And this was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in that book. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And if any man's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from a mud puddle. Is that what it says? Where? 
the spring of the water of life. And he who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death that don't sound pretty at all. It is very important where you get your spiritual drink. Now, by now you know that I was born in Harrisonburg. It's, everything is better in Harrisonburg. <laughs> no, I just... On the farm that I was born on, we used to have to pick rocks. And we'd pick rocks in the spring before Dad planted corn, and we'd pick rocks in the fall before he planted his fall crops. It was a bondage. It was like working in Egypt. And you pick rocks, and there would be more come up. But there was a woods along the one field, and we knew of a place in that woods where there was a big tree. And at the base of that big tree, water bubbled up out of the ground, and it was as pure as crystal and cold, just like out of a refrigerator fountain back there. And we'd be picking rocks out there in that hot sun, and we'd go over there under that tree and lay down on our stomachs, and it'd be green moss all around there, and we'd drink that water. And it was as good as a Coca-Cola almost. It was like the springs of water of life. There was not a hint of cyanide in that water. No false or erroneous teaching in that spring that is now Samuel Gehring's farm. And I called him recently. And I asked him if it's still there. And he said, it's still there. And it's still bubbling up, that clean, fresh water. Now, if you go up there to Harrisonburg and go back to Samuel Gehring's farm, uh, he might, and you was thirsty, you could ask him if you could drink out of that spring. But he also runs a big dairy there. And he's got this huge concrete manure storage pit where he swills all of his muck down in there. I mean, it's closer to get to. It's easier to get to. And I imagine if you wanted, he'd let you drink out of that. But me, I know where that spring of living water is over under that oak tree. That's where I'm going. You take your pick. I'm sure Sam will let you have a choice. It's up to you. Beware of books, podcasts, video clips, and publications of those whose faith and practice an application is weak at best or is obviously not applying the whole truth of the scripture, remember, we are never more spiritual than we are scriptural. Amen. It is a grave and serious responsibility for those of us who are given the responsibility of teaching to be neglectful about maintaining the purity of the gospel. And that's not just for church leaders, it's for fathers and mothers as you teach and train your children to grow up to be the faithful next generation, pillars in the church. 1 Corinthians 9.16 For although I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory for, for the necessity is laid upon me, 
Yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Beware of where you get your water that you serve other people. I want to talk to you just a bit now about a, something that I've observed in the last. I've taught Bible school and I work with young people. I teach at Igo. And I'm going to talk to you about the cyanide of the Anabaptist movie culture. You know, for a long time, we've heard <coughs> that women aren't visual. Well, don't fool yourself. You know, it's been preached and promoted far too long that impurity's a guy thing. That simply isn't true. A young lady will have a deeper respect for a guy if she witnesses him guarding his eyes. And so it works for both sexes, this thing of purity and what you look at and what you observe. I had a couple that worked for us from the West Coast some years ago, and they went 100 miles north of us to look at some heifers, heifers that they wanted to buy off of a man. And she was there in her skirt and needed to cross a fence. And she noticed that the man, when she went to cross through the fence, he turned and looked out at the stars or the moon or something. And she came back and told me that out west, they won't do that. She, she never heard of a man looking the other way to respect this lady's modesty as she tried to cross the fence. And there's something so attractive about a guy that guards his eyes. It makes a girl feel safe and secure. It makes her feel valued far beyond her body. And when a man talks to a poorly dressed woman and has the strength to only look her in the eye, a girl's respect is deepened. There's nothing lastingly attractive about a man that is undisciplined and lustful. And that goes for ladies too. Ladies... <clears throat> If you expect the guys to guard their eyes, you must guard yours. And most ladies have huge and healthy imaginations too. There is some women who cannot grasp or understand the power that they have over young men. A godly lady instills within a man a desire to be better than he can be and helps him fight or walk on the moral high road. I heard a story one time of a, a couple of old guys that went to play golf and they were putting around playing a couple greens and, and here he noticed that one of the girls that he went to high school with years ago was was out there playing golf with some of her friends. So at lunchtime, he went home and told his wife, and she's, he said, oh, I met Betsy. I used to go to school with her. And he says, well, she says, well, what did you learn? He said, I learned that you can't keep your stomach sucked up that long. And so that's the way a godly girl makes a man want to be more than he really is. It brings out the best in him. The same goes the other way. Purity will be a lifelong and constant battle to cultivate, to have dedicated hearts that refuse to lack in the area of personal purity. 
And we must dismiss evil thoughts. And when we go in our mind places where we wouldn't go in real life, that is sin. I would like to suggest that most of the media that comes through the eye gate is at the devil's workshop. Lust is sin, and it may be very common, but it does not make it okay. And just because your peers or church leaders don't know doesn't make it okay. God knows, He sees, and He cares. He is a just God and will judge our thoughts and our actions and our motives. And God desires us to see us walk in victory, and He will help us. Sexual intimacy is a beautiful thing designed by God, but only in the confines of marriage. And ever since the Garden of Eden, the devil has been hard at working, finding ways to pervert it and to make it shameful and dirty. I'm not a big fan of movies in general. I can and have enjoyed an educational documentary, but again with discretion. I do not have time to watch movies. And I would hope that if I did not, that I would not watch movies if I did have time. So why do so many Anabaptist people spend so much time watching movies? They seem to be addicted. I would like to suggest that a movie is not just a movie. It's a method of shaping society and your worldview. It provides a guy with a chance to look at pornography. Oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong. It provides thought processes and behaviors that blur the distinctions between real life and imaginary make-believe experiences. It creates a false sense of reality and it replaces God in the discussion while making uh, the movie making process. A culture of movie watching has developed among the young Anabaptist people. Meanwhile, movies are shaping and impacting their young lives and ways of the world. Watching movies has become a way to take a break from life and allow the screen, both large and small, to present its version of life and it allows the watcher to descend from life's daily difficulties and allows us to experience a wide range of experiences and emotions. It meets people at all levels of arousal. It engages them with sinful emotional images that burn into our minds, and those images create a separate reality in our mind. But I want to give you some reasons why you shouldn't foster a movie-watching habit. It desensitizes our spiritual discernment. It desensitizes our lack of discretion. It desensitizes our <clears throat> view of immodesty, our view of immorality, our view of violence. It desensitizes us to vile behaviors, to vile languages, and a violation of biblical teaching. So often in movies, sin becomes normal. And that's too high of a price to pay for an hour to escape from the stresses and realities of life. 
Among my many objections with movies is that God's name is frequently used in vile ways. The liberal worldly agenda that has been attacking, attacking the foundations of society for many years are often prominent in movies. Love stories, mysteries, and thrillers of all sorts captivate the eye and mind. Many millions of dollars are invested in the production where misinformation is fed into our lives and behaviors and appearance of men and women are be paraded before our eyes. <clears throat> are there no good movies? Of course there are. They are not all in the same category. But user discretion is critical, and it is not always present. And little by little, the movie-watching habit grows until... Discernment is dulled and distinction, discretion is numbed and we slip into sin. Movies create an unchristian worldview. It's not just a movie. Hollywood knows the power of images. Movies not only present but reshape our society and they will reshape your life too. Do you want your life shaped by Hollywood or God and His Word? It's your choice. You can't have it both ways. Psalm 101 verse 3, I will set no evil thing before me. There's one thing that, I don't care if you're watching a Jenny Hokey movie or what, but there's always romance, there's always a love scene, you know. Can you imagine, you know, your mama going off to work uh, making movies and She's there, uh, you know, schlecking with this guy. I don't know Dutch, but I know that one word. You know, hugging up and kissing on this guy. And, and then at the end of the day, she comes home and cooks supper and helps the children with their homework and, and goes to bed. And family to You know, most of these people in the movies aren't married. But that's what they do for a job. There's something wrong. It says in the last verse of Romans chapter 1 that those who do these things and those who enjoy watching them do these things are guilty of their sin. You can look that up for yourself. The last verse of Romans chapter 1. Romans, oh, I'll read it to you right now. Romans chapter 1 verse 12. Although they know God... They know his righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, and they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. So be careful what you watch and enjoy, whether it's stuff at the pro sports or whatever. You become, when you enjoy what they're doing and you know it's wrong, you become guilty of participating in their sin. Okay. Now, I want to go to the woman of Samaria quickly. John chapter 4, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me a drink. For his disciples were going away into a city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew askest me of a drink? Which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If thou knowest the gift of God and he, who it was that sent it to thee, 
Give me a drink, thou wouldst ask of him, and he would have given thee living water. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, from which then thou hast thou that living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which give us this well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be within him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So this verse is confirmed that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of our spiritual water. Not Islam, not Buddha, nor all the sacred cows in India. Jesus and Jesus alone is your source of the living water. Amen. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Acts 4.12 the time is coming when there will be no more living water for all. There will be those who long for it, who beg for it, who plead for just a few drops. But that opportunity to enjoy that cool, refreshing spring will be gone forever. We know those verses. Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. A couple of years ago, Grace and I went to see Aaron, our youngest son, in Nicaragua, and we, we made the mistake of going in February. And they live on the dry coast along the Pacific Ocean, and it don't rain there for six months. And then it rains every day for six months. We were there in February, and it was so hot and so windy, and dirt would go through the windows and dust, and it was so hot. And I'll confess that I sat in church and daydreamed. I didn't speak Spanish, and um, I wish that I did, but it was so hot in that church. And as I was sitting there, my mind was drawn not to the message. I apologize. But it wandered off to a... <clears throat> I could see in my mind a tall glass bottle of Coca-Cola with beads of sweat running down the side of the bottle and collecting in a small ring of foam at the top as they bubbled and sizzled and danced and sparkled their way up into thin air. I was so thirsty. Rest assured, there's no sodas in hell. There won't be any water either. 2 Corinthians 6.2 for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in a day of salvation have I succored thee or favored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. No one is forced to yield or to live his life for God while we're in this time or today. 
but the scriptures are full of invitations calling us to Christ and to the life-giving living water. John 3, John 7, 37. And Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will come flowing out of him. Revelation 22, 7. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take freely of the gift of the water of life. Life-giving water with no cyanide. I don't remember President Calvin Coolidge. I don't know if any of you all do. He was president in the 1920s. Before he was president, he was vice president, and he, of course, presided over the Senate. And I thought that political banner and rudeness only happened in our day and time, but it happened back in the 1920s, too. One senator angrily talked to another senator and told him to go straight to hell. The offended senator complained to um, Vice President Coolidge and asked him as the presiding officer what he was going to do about it. And Mr. Coolidge looked up from the book of rules that he had been leafing through while listening to the debate. I've been looking through the rule book, he said, and you don't have to go. I am here this evening to tell you that we don't have to go there either. But if you insist on drinking from springs other than the living water that Jesus gives, you have made your own choice. Remember, we are free to make our choices, but we are not free from the consequences of those choices. How many of you all fly commercially? Grace did today, yeah. Carl, do do you listen to that lady up front? Uh, you know, going over the rules, or you there playing on your phone and sending off those last texts? You you, you don't listen to her, no. I mean, the rest of y'all listen to those stewardess stewards reading off the safety things. Well, one lady says she does. The rest of you just tune them out. Done with them. You know, day after day, many times a day, she stands at the front of that plane and she reads that paper and she demonstrates the oxygen mask and the, the life cushions and all those things she does. She knows you're not listening. Preachers know when you're not listening too. She's giving you out warnings and instructions how you can be saved could calamity befall your airplane and not, we're in a book, we're sending off those last texts, preparing to sleep, getting that blanket around those fuzzy slippers, you know. We're oblivious to the warnings that this lady is giving to save our life. You know, and as she buckled her belt and clicked hers, did you click yours? Not, Carl didn't. And when she put that oxygen mask over her face, did you check where yours was? Do you know where your exit door is? And she points them. Are you strong enough to open that door and show others how to get out? 
and then you go out after them, almost nobody pays attention. She's just like Noah, preaching day after day after day, and no response. You know, what if she'd sat and say, you'd better listen to me. One mishap in this plane will turn into a flaming flying coffin. Perhaps she could get a gasoline-soaked dial and ignite it as she walked up and down the aisle. She'd get your attention. And what if the flight screens would come down and show video clips of people trying to find the exit doors in the cabin filled with smoke and they're clawing at the walls trying to find those exit doors that they didn't pay attention. Smoke is filling the cabin. They're just gasping for some clean air. What if she raced up and down the aisle and snatched away your newspapers, your tablets, your cell phones, and demanded that people listen to her? If you want to escape this imminent flying inferno. Yeah, she'd probably lose her job, but she'd make her point, and she'd be doing her passengers a favor. I want to tell you this evening, the choice is yours. You can drink the pure word of, the Lord, of, the, of Jesus from the wells of life, or you can drink your cyanide laced. You can watch tainted movies. It's your choice. But we cannot escape facing our maker. I want to... Uh, Ask Carl to sing a verse of Just As I Am. Perhaps you've never made a commitment to Jesus before and you feel God speaking to you. Perhaps you've got a movie addiction and you feel guilty about it and you just want the strength to do better. Perhaps you like to read stuff that's tainted full of false doctrine. Be careful. Drive a peg tonight. Shall we sing? Thank you again for your attention, and may God bless you.